Hi, I'm Edward Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. Where did the first Christmas really take place? In other words, where was the baby Jesus born? In our modern imagination, we often think of it being in a stable, right? We show up at church on Christmas and we see the nativity scene. It has Jesus there in a manger with the animals there in a stable. Maybe you have a nativity scene at home. I bet your nativity scene probably has Jesus in a stable, right? That, that's the common modern interpretation of the biblical story of Christ's birth. But did you know that the Bible doesn't say that Jesus was born in a stable? Did you know that that's a later tradition? Did you know that the earliest Christians didn't think it took place in a stable? Did you know that the earliest Christians believed that Jesus was born in a cave? In fact, if you go to Bethlehem to this day, the locals will tell you Jesus was born in a cave, and there's this big church built over the the networks of caves there in Bethlehem, and they can point to the very spot that had been revered from very early in Christianity where Jesus was born in a cave. Is there any biblical evidence for this? And uh, what do we know from the early church tradition on this? And even more, what's the significance? Does it really matter where Jesus was born? We're going to see there's a profound spiritual meaning to Jesus being born in a cave that's so important for understanding his mission and so important for understanding what he came to do in our own souls even today. And that's what we're going to look at in this week's podcast. So welcome to All Things Catholic. I'm your host, Edward Sree. And, you know, we're approaching the great solemnity of Christmas, the birth of our Lord. We're celebrating the the great days of Christmas, but pretty soon we're going to get to New Year's. And you are going to be thinking about New Year's resolutions soon, I bet. And I want to give you one idea. Have you ever read the Bible? I mean, not just parts of the Bible, but the entire Bible. There's a great program out there you've probably heard about. It's called The Bible in a Year. And my good friends, uh, Jeff Cavins and Father Mike Schmitz, have put together this wonderful program. You can listen to it uh, audio every day as a podcast to, to hear the bits of Scripture all throughout the year. Uh, there's a workbook that accompanies this program, and you could take the Scriptures and write it in your heart throughout the year. Uh, check out The Bible in the Year program. Uh, you can go to ascensionpress.com. We'll put all the information in the show notes as well. Uh, that could be a great New Year's resolution for you. Always good to encounter the Lord more in Holy Scripture. But let's turn back to this topic of where Jesus was born. You know, uh, the modern imagination thinks about it in a stable, and I, I get where they're coming from. When you read Luke chapter 2, verse 7 in most English translations, it says that uh, there was no room for them in the inn. Remember that line, there's no room for them in the inn. So we get this, this idea that maybe Mary and Joseph were getting into Bethlehem. It's late at night. And they're scrambling, trying to find a, a hotel in Bethlehem. And, but there was no room for them in the inn. There was no vacancy, no spot for them. And so they, they end up going into this stable. And, they, and many times it's portrayed as if the innkeeper says, well, I don't have any, any rooms, but here, you, you can go stay out in the stable where, where I have my animals. <laughs> so that, that's where this tradition comes from. And, and we get the idea of there being animals around because Jesus is laid in a manger. That's what it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, a manger, a feeding trough for animals. So that's where people assume that there must have been some kind of stable there. Well, a couple things I want to highlight about this biblically. First of all, you need to know that the biblical word in Luke 2, 7, the Greek word used there 
that's commonly translated in is the Greek word katalima, which doesn't mean necessarily inn or hotel or, or uh, like a motel or something. It actually just means a lodging place, a place for resting, uh, a place to sleep. Uh, that, that could be at a hotel. It could be at someone's house. It could be a bedroom. It could be the guest quarters. Uh, so there's there's no room in the place of lodging, place of resting. And so could it have been an inn? Possibly, but the word doesn't mean inn. In fact, Luke himself, when he wants to describe an actual inn, later on in his own gospel, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And you may remember the Good Samaritan finds this man that's been beat up and uh, takes him to an inn, an actual inn. And when Luke wants to describe that inn, he uses a different word. He doesn't use the word catalemma. So here in Luke 2.7, he's using just a broader term. So Mary and Joseph are traveling. Think about this. They're, they're, why are they going to Bethlehem? If you remember the story, there's the great Roman census, and Joseph has to go be counted in his ancestral town. He's going to the town of his origins, his family origins. And so when he goes back to Bethlehem, do you think he's staying at the Motel 6? Maybe, but he presumably would be staying with family. And he's probably got a lot of relatives there. And, and you get a sense that there was no room in the Catalima in the guest room. There's probably a lot of guests coming in to be counted for the census, a lot of other relatives, and there's just no room to have a quiet place, a discreet place for Mary to give birth to the child. She doesn't want to give birth with everybody else all around, probably, right? She's going to go somewhere a little more discreetly. And so the family says, you know, here, you can you can go over here and use this part. And so they go to the part away from everybody else, uh, over by where the animals are, near the manger. So that seems very likely what happened. But where do we get this idea of a cave, Dr. Shri? You, you, you said that the earliest tradition was that Jesus was born in a cave. Do we have any indications of that in early Christianity? Well, as I mentioned, it's the earliest tradition. We see church leaders like Justin Martyr writing in the mid-100s about how Jesus was born in a cave. The Proto-Evangelium of James, an early Christian text, again, in the mid to later 100s AD. This is just within a few generations of the apostles that we have these writings that are pointing to Jesus being born in a cave. Origen, another church father in the mid-200s, references this. St. Jerome, the great uh, church father of St. Jerome, who lived in Bethlehem, translated the Hebrew scriptures into the common language of the day. He knew the traditions really well, having lived there, uh, spent so much time praying there. And according to St. Jerome, the, the, what happened was there was a, there was a, a, a pagan emperor in the early 100s uh, named Hadrian. And Hadrian didn't like Christian pilgrims going and remembering the places of Jesus. And so, for example, we know that Hadrian didn't like that Christians were going to reverence the place of Calvary and Christ's tomb. Uh, and so he ended up building a pagan temple right over Calvary to prevent Christians from going there <laughs> and praying there. Uh, and, and according to Jerome, he did the same thing in Bethlehem. So that actually serves as a marker. <laughs> so later on, when uh, Constantine is the emperor and, and Christians are free to worship God now, and Constantine, Constantine's mother, Helen, goes back to, to the Holy Land to find all the holy sites. And the irony is that the, the pagan emperor, Hadrian, who wanted to wipe out from the memory of the Christians the places where Jesus died, where he was born, where he was buried, uh, by leaving these pagan temples over those spots— he leaves a great marker for Helen to know this is the very place where Jesus died. This is the very place where he was buried. This is the very place 
where he was born. And that's why today we have this wonderful church that's built there that goes all the way back. Its roots go all the way back to the time of St. Helen, the time of Constantine in the early 300s AD. Uh, and and if again, you go on pilgrimage there, you go underneath this big church down into the crypt, you can go and kiss the very spot that the early Christians believed is where Jesus was born. Now, what about the significance of all this? What's the significance of Jesus being born in a cave? Does it really matter whether whether it was a stable, whether it was a cave, or it was in someone's backyard or in, in their guest room? Does it really matter where the birth took place? And I would say there's a great biblical symbolism at work here. You see, Luke's gospel is making a connection between the way Jesus enters this world and the way he leaves this world. He, he makes a, a connection between how he is born and how he's going to die. Because Jesus is born in a cave. If he's born in a cave, that parallels what's going to happen at the end of the story. Think about this. Luke tells us this little detail. I've probably mentioned this before uh, on the show, that in in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, it tells us that the baby Jesus was wrapped and laid in a manger. It's interesting that the only time Luke's gospel uses that language, that Jesus was wrapped and laid. The only time you ever find those two verbs back to back in Luke's gospel, the only other time in addition to Luke 2, 7 at the birth of Jesus on Christmas night, the only other time you find those two verbs used back to back in Luke's gospel is at the very end of the story. In Luke chapter 23, verse 53, on Good Friday, do you remember what they did with Jesus's body as Jesus breathes his last? They take his body down from the cross. And in Luke 23, 55, we find those same two verbs again, that they wrapped the body of Jesus in linen garments and laid him in a tomb. But what's most interesting is it says that it was a rock-hewn tomb. In other words, Jesus wasn't just, you know, you know, dug, you know, they, they dug a grave for him like out in the, the countryside, you know, where there's rich fertile soil. No, no. It was a rock-hewn tomb, like a cave. And so the early Christians saw a great symbolism that just as Jesus was born in a cave, so he he completes his mission by being buried in a cave, in a rock-hewn tomb. Uh, In fact, early Christian iconography often made this kind of connection, like depicting Jesus in the cave, foreshadowing his burial in a a rock-hewn tomb. Uh, the, the, The point is this, is that Jesus, the Holy Son of God, loves us so much the God who is love loves us so much. He came and entered into our suffering. He entered into our humanity. He entered into all of our pain and our sorrows. And, and he does this not just on Good Friday. He does it right at the very beginning, at the very beginning of his life. The, the Holy Son of God comes to liberate us from sin, to liberate us from all evil, to free us from the reins of the devil. How does he do it? He doesn't come with a mighty army. He doesn't come with great you know, worldly glory and power. No, he comes in poverty, in humility. He comes in great austerity, in suffering. He has to be laid in a manger among the animals in this, in this, in this cave. And we know that caves were dwelling places for poor peasant people in the ancient Near Eastern world. And so what you can picture here is Mary and Joseph, they come back to Bethlehem to be counted. But we know that Mary and Joseph were among the poor. 
We know this from the story of the presentation. Forty days after Jesus is born, they go through the ritual of presenting the firstborn. And it was common to present the firstborn, and you had to offer at the temple uh, an animal and a bird. An animal and a bird. And a bird was really cheap, easy to get a bird, but the animal, you you bring some kind of, you know, something from your flock. That was that that was a more expensive item. But there was a there was a exception clause in the Old Testament that said, you know, if if you're really poor though, and you can't afford an an animal, you can just bring instead of an animal and a bird, you can just bring two birds because birds are cheap. And we know what did Mary and Joseph have to offer in the temple? The two birds. So we know that they were poor. They came from the from the lower classes. And so when they go back to Bethlehem, it's if they're staying with family, it's not surprising that they might have to stay in a cave. Now, I just want you just to picture that. Picture, you know, those of you who are parents, especially, just picture, you know, your you husbands out there, picture your wife having to give birth in a cave among the animals. And they put the baby in in the manger. I mean, I know we sing this song away in a manger every year, and it sounds all pretty away in a manger, you know, but but really that that's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. The Holy Son of God deserves so much more. He has such great dignity and goodness and love and holiness. But he chose to enter into our suffering, to be united to us in those moments in our lives when we feel unappreciated, we feel hurt, we feel rejected, we feel poor. He unites himself to our sufferings. That's what he's doing here. In fact, St. John of the Cross has a, a beautiful reflection on this. He talks about how Jesus is the divine bridegroom, the Holy Son of God, who's so in love with us. And his love reaches down to us. And he just wants to enter in. So he's like leaping down, you know, and entering into Mary's womb, wanting to unite himself to us. We who have been in this valley of tears, we who, because of sin and our original sin, we are, we're, we, we cry, we suffer, we groan, we, we muddle through life, and we, we go through one sorrow and one disappointment, one rejection, one hurt, one fear, one anxiety, another insecurity. We just live in, in much suffering in this world. And we cry out to God, and, and John of the Cross reflects on this, that all humanity is crying out to God, yearning for God to come and rescue them, come and free them from sin and suffering and death. And then one day, this son comes to us in Mary's womb, and he's born on Christmas Day. He's made manifest to us. He's born in a cave, born in cold, born in poverty. And he cries. The baby cries. You know, when we hear a little baby crying, when I hear it at Mass, I just smile. We haven't had a, a baby in a little while in this three household. We long for one, and, and it's just fun to hear the little babies cry. But I, I want to think about this cry, though. This is the cry of the Son of God. The holy, eternal, all-powerful God is crying. He's crying. What a mystery. He enters into our suffering. He unites himself to us in our suffering. So this is the reflection of St. John of the Cross. The cry of the baby Jesus is the cry of the Holy Son of God, the bridegroom who loves us so much, who loves us so much he seeks us out. It enters into our suffering, enters into all of our pain. So here's what I want you to do, my friends. 
I know in the busyness of all this going on, you may be traveling and packing and getting ready to host and buying presents and wrapping things. And you know, it's always a really busy time. But find some time, maybe right now you can do this and just pause for a moment and think about an area in your life where your soul is crying out. You're crying out for, for love. You're crying out for attention. You're crying out to be noticed. You're crying out to, to just experience community with others. Maybe you're really lonely. Or maybe you're crying out in physical pain, like you're, you're going through some great physical suffering in life, maybe some illness, long-term physical suffering that you've been battling. Maybe that's your pain, or maybe it's a, a cry in the office and in your career. We are just wondering, what's the next step? Where does God have me going? I'm not sure that the company appreciates what I'm doing. I'm wondering, where, where is the next step, Lord? Maybe that's your cry. Maybe your cry is for your children. You have a child who's suffering or a child who's away from the church, uh, a child that's not behaving well, and you're wondering, am I parenting well? And, and you have a cry that's going out. Maybe your cry is in your marriage. Maybe you're single and you're crying and longing, longing to find your beloved, who's the one that God may be calling you to marry. Whatever that cry is right now, take that to the Lord. Take a moment in prayer and realize Jesus has entered into your cry. When he cried on that first Christmas night, it was the first cry of the Holy Son of God in human flesh, united to us. And we rejoice that he came and entered into our suffering to strengthen us, to encourage us, to help us. But he did cry. And that cry foreshadows the deep cry in the agony in the garden and the cry on the cross, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? To think about the cries of Jesus from his childhood as a baby in Bethlehem all the way to Calvary, from entering this world in a, in, in a cave, in rejection, in a manger, and how he was placed in a rock-hewn tomb. That same Jesus wants to enter whatever cries you have. He wants to enter the caverns of your soul. Let him in. Let him in this Christmas think of the mystery of his descending into whatever poverty, whatever suffering you have, and know he wants to meet you there. He wants to comfort you, encourage you. Take your cries to the Lord, to the baby Jesus. Unite them. And may those cries of suffering and sorrow and sadness turn into cries of great joy, with great confidence that the Lord has come to save us to save us from all sins, save us from all darkness, whatever may be deeply troubling us now and to the end of our lives. Thanks so much for listening. May you have a joyous and blessed Christmas season. Please pray for me. I'll be praying for you and your family. God bless.